the Truth Serum, a podcast of Crossover Bible Fellowship. In this episode, we will discuss race in the church. When we look at our culture, it is clear people of color are treated differently in society. The prevailing thought is that in the church, we are exempt from racism because we're supposed to be unified as one body of Christ and love is stronger than hate. However, what we see is whether it is 1920 or the year 2020, it is clear our culture has influenced even the church as it relates to race. And from my observation, uh, people take one of three stances, uh, blissful ignorance, passive segregation, or they're actively trying to work for change. All that being said, what does God have to say about racism and how can we overcome it? So that's the premise for today's episode, but also just one more bit of clarity. Uh, when we talk about racism, uh, I would define it as such. Uh, racism is prejudice or discrimination or antagonism directed against someone of a different race because you believe your own race is superior to theirs. And I'll, I'll pause right there. But also... Um, you know, we have everybody here on the podcast, and not just myself. My name is Nathan Alote, uh, one of the main people doing the podcast. But yeah, everybody, I would just say, because uh, we have a lot of new guests here, uh, introduce yourselves, and also you can introduce our special guest. I'll say that. But uh, yeah, so uh, Aaron, go ahead, kick it off, introduce yourself, and say what's up. Hey, what's up, guys? This is Aaron. Um, good to be back on the podcast today. Uh, I've been, <laughs> I've been, like I said in the beginning, I've been definitely. Um, ready to talk about this since everything going on from Ahmaud Aubrey to um, my man George uh, Floyd, and so I'm just I'm just excited to be here, excited to be a part of this, and um, just thankful for the opportunity to be here with you all. So, yeah, I'm gonna click it over to Miss B Love, Miss Brittany. <laughs> Hi, so I'm Brittany. Um, I'm a Houston native. Um, I'm happy to to discuss this as well. Um, even I mean, even though I'm black, even though I'm from America, I'm still not an expert. <laughs> <laughs> wow, <laughs> I'm not an expert on race relations. Mm -hmm. And this issue is very complex. It's been going on for a long time in this country since the beginning. Um, and so I, I'm hoping that this conversation can spark some new ideas for people about how to engage. Um, and how to continue to engage even when we don't have um, these big uh, headlines right. to follow and hashtag. Mm -hmm. What's going on, fam? Uh, my name is Joaquin Morris. Um, I'm, a, I'm actually from Macon, Georgia, um, an hour south of Atlanta. Um, and man, I just can't wait to talk to you guys. Uh, so good to see you guys again, Brittany, Aaron, Nathan. So good to see you guys. Uh, and I will let Nathan uh, introduce our special guest. <laughs> I wonder who that is. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> it's the person who doesn't have a truth shirt on. Um, or a microphone. <laughs> Just a microphone. But no, normally it's us four talking about different things that affect millennials. Uh, us four being, you know, myself, Aaron, Brittany, Joaquin. We do have a guest today, uh, Marshall. We wanted him to have a part of this conversation just because of his perspective and also uh, his biblical prowess. But um, also we just wanted to have an open conversation about this. We've already talked about this somewhat and it was excellent conversation. So we wanted to clue you all in into some of the fruitful conversation that we had. But Marshall, if you will, please uh, introduce yourself however you see fit. Uh, yeah, so I, like they said, my name's Marshall. Uh, I'm from Houston, currently living in Houston. Um, and I'm really looking forward to this discussion. I feel very uh, out of place. I feel unqualified to speak on these things, but my hope is that um, I can encourage other um, white Christians to stand up and, and speak out and uh, stand firm on what God's word clearly says um, about issues like racism, oppression, um, and maybe, maybe if I, maybe if I just stand up, maybe I can encourage some others to stand up too. Now, for those listening, because not everybody can see us, uh, 
Marshall happens to be white. Oh my gosh, you know. Uh, but the be- the better thing than even that is we all go to the same church, right? Yeah. So it's not like we just plucked a random person and invited <laughs> them to the podcast. Like Marshall, Marshall goes to our church and he is a young adult. And we know he is, him. <laughs> yeah, and he's a leader, right? So mm-hmm. uh, that being said, that's one of the reasons why uh, you know God placed him on our heart to have him as a part of this conversation. We've had guests before, so. It's not a unique thing, but I do think unique circumstances happened when we already had this on the schedule. So that's that's crazy. But I'll kick it off like this, though. Let's transition to the podcast. So I'll kick it off like this. So some of you all may have heard of someone named Jane Elliott. Now, Jane Elliott is a former teacher and she is an anti-racism activist. Right. You might have seen some of her videos. Uh, kind of a short, older lady with white hair and glasses, talks very quickly. Um, she's very popular in, in an experiment that she did with her children. She was a teacher, and she did an experiment. She said, I don't think these kids understand uh, racism, so I'll do an experiment. Children in my classroom who have brown eyes, this is the first time she did it. She said, if you have brown eyes, you're smarter, uh, you know, you're, you're a better thinker. Uh, you're cleaner. She was just making up reasons. She said, if you're brown eyes and if you have blue eyes, you're not as smart. You're slow. You you, you can't get things quickly. You, you have bad behavior. And she separated her children into her children in the classroom. She's teaching that is she separated them into brown eyes and blue eyes. And she said she was amazed that these students automatically started treating the blue eyed people badly. This allowed her to see that racism in a sense had to be taught. It's not like this mysterious thing that is just floating around. She saw that, how did the kids know how to do this? They must've picked up on social cues that exist in our society. So if they learned it, they can unlearn it, but they won't be able to learn it unless they're subjected to some ridicule of the negative effects of what racism is. The thing that blew me away about Jane Elliott is she started doing this because Martin Luther King was shot. And she said she has to do something. You know, as a white woman, she felt obligated that after Martin Luther King got shot and he was peaceful, a peaceful person, she was like, I have to do something to raise awareness to change my you know, society, to change my neighborhood. And this is what the idea that she had. Now, I also found out while she did this experiment, Many people in her very own neighborhood started to hate her and her family. Her kids got picked on, sometimes even beat up. Um, She even had to move them to a different school because, you know, they said, oh, you're the children of your mother, who the Negro lover. But the thing that shocked Jane Elliott the most was not how they were treating her. The thing that shocked her the most was this was a Christian community that was treating her like this. So, th- so in the onset, that was an example from years ago in the 60s. And the thing that appalled her was so-called Christians were treating her like this. So the thing that we want to cover today is we know that racism exists in the culture, but does it exist in the church? And if so, what does it even look like? So that brings me to the first question, and you all can answer in any way you see fit. But the first question I have, and by the way, feel free to drop a question in the comments if you have one, viewers. Um, do you believe racism exists in the church? And if so, where do you think it came from? So do you believe racism exists and where did it come from? I'll kick it to Brittany first. So I definitely think that racism exists in the church, just like every other issue. I mean, I just, I mean, any kind of life issue that a person can have exists in the church. So, um, and I don't just mean the physical space, of course. I mean, like, exists within the community of the people of God. Um, I mean, we we experience all sorts of prejudices in our hearts, right? And I think what makes racism unique from merely a prejudice, like, I don't like people with blue eyes um is that it's systemic it's there's a whole system that 
that supports, that builds upon, that kind of drives racism. Um, and there's a whole community of people who support and drive racism directly or indirectly. Now, I mean, goodness gracious, the thought that comes to mind, of course, is historic, I mean, historically Southern Baptists. And I'm sure that like some places still Southern Baptists, but um, like historically <laughs> Southern Baptists and their support of slavery. Um, and when I say support, I mean, hmm. <laughs> I don't mean today where it's like, do I support such and such or not? I mean, like, this is a part of my life and I'm unwilling to live without it. Um, and I, I mean, this is a denomination like a Christians. And so does racism exist in the church? It exists in the church as much as different cultures and communities exist in the church. Um, and I think that where does it come from? Maybe we can get to that in a second. No, gotcha. Thanks. <laughs> Uh, Marshall, I know when we talked about this a little previously, you have interesting thoughts uh, about this. So what are your thoughts? Racism, does it exist and where did it come from? Yeah, absolutely. I think it exists. I think um, I think where it comes from, uh, I think started all the way back in the garden. Um, so when you consider Adam and Eve, um, who were commanded not to eat of the fruit, uh, the promise was that if they ate that uh, from, from Satan, was the promise was that if you eat it, uh, you'll be like God. Well, if I'm like God, I don't need God. So if you eliminate God from your life or from your system of living, uh, that that role's got to be replaced by something or someone. Most often we replace it with ourselves. So if I believe I'm superior to God, it's not a far leap for me to believe I'm somehow superior to other people. Um, and then you're going to find that play out uh, in Places like the story of the, the Tower of Babel, where they thought they were superior. Well, we'll just get together. We'll build this tower up to God uh, and then look how awesome we are. And, it, and, and the idea in the Hebrew is that God literally stoops down uh, because it's like, oh, you're building this real tall tower. Let me stoop down here and see what you're actually doing. Um, and so then you see that play out even into uh, in the New Testament. You see that with the disciples who are arguing who's the greatest among them. Um, you know, in like Luke chapter 22, they're arguing about who's the greatest. Um, and Jesus is like, the, the greatest is the one who's the, the greatest servant, not just some position. It's not about that. And so there's been this fight. I mean, you see racism even happening in Galatians chapter two, uh, where Paul has to confront Peter uh, because Peter is uh, spending time with the Gentiles. But then when the Jewish people show up, all of a sudden mm -hmm. it's like, oh, no, I don't associate with these people. I'm out, you know, I'm going to hang out over here. And, and Paul's like, bro, that you can't be doing that. Um, and it says he rebukes him sharply for it. So, um, so I think there is some of that. And then you fast forward into today, you've got a culture that um, has attempted to eliminate God. And so one of the ways we've done that is through Darwinism, right? This idea of evolution. Well, if evolution exists, then it's not a far leap to jump to social Darwinism which is then, okay, well, if, if, if survival of the fittest, well, then let's just take this a step further. Because if we've eliminated God and I'm God, then I can decide who's great, who's not. And so if mm. I view a race of people as less than me, then uh, social Darwinism, they should be somehow eliminated or segregated and cut off. And so I think, it, I think that's just kind of a, a brief, probably oversimplified, uh, snapshot of just kind of where I think it, it might've come from. <laughs> no, nah, definitely. Yeah. Social Darwinism. I'm like, y'all don't know. Google that. But, uh, <laughs> Aaron, any, Aaron, what are your thoughts? Yeah. I guess my thoughts on it. I, I agree with Brittany when yes, racism does exist in the church. Um, just like any other sin, um, it exists, um, and it's prevalent. Uh, and with that, uh, where does it come from? I think one thing that Brittany said, and I was speaking the same thing, you, you see the Southern Baptists, you know, who perpetuated this um, throughout the years. You have theologians who wrote on this. And these theologians who wrote, these pastors who, who read these things, who went to seminary, who read these things, they're like, okay, this must be the truth. And then they perpetuated that to their members, and those members perpetuated it to their children. And now children and then children's children. So I think this, I think when you talk about where does it come from, it stimulates 
I mean, as Marshall said, from the, from the fall, but when we talk about definitely in America, um, it's definitely a perpetuation of um, believers, um, maybe distorting scripture, um, believers um, saying that this is what God has to say uh, when, it com- when it comes to uh, different people groups and saying that their race or their ethnicity is above or superior than someone else. Um, and I think that's this perpetuated um, in the family. And once that happens inside the family, it just continues. And that becomes their reality. Joaquin, any, any thoughts on where racism might have come from in the church, yeah. at, least, at least to get in the church? No, I think Brittany and Marshall and Aaron spoke to it well. Um, I definitely think it starts in the garden as, um, as Marshall um, has uh, so described. Um, and it's been, I mean, it's been with us ever since, you know, all the way from different types of, you know, even through slavery. I mean, we have, you know, so-called juggernauts in the faith, so-called, such as Jonathan Edwards, you know, people like that who actually own slaves. Yeah. And so, I mean, um, when you look at, you know, people of that nature and who were, you know, so-called historic in the church, you know, you even have people, um, you know, that, that look at, you know, uh, another race different than than they were themselves. So, I mean, I think Marshall and Brittany summed it up well. No, gotcha. And, and the thing that made me think about next, and you already gave some examples, but I really was thinking... For some reason, there seems to be this detachment. There seems to be this idea that uh, I'm a Christian. I love God. The culture has not influenced me in this way. But the interesting thing that I've seen is people are getting influenced by the culture around the area of race, and they don't even realize it. Mm -hmm. Uh, You brought up Jonathan Edwards, who is quoted quite a bit, has many writings. But at, at one point, probably didn't even think like slavery was that bad sure now that's a bit of an assumption i can't read his mind but i'm saying that based upon what he did so i probably didn't think it was that bad so it's just interesting that there's this i guess separation that you know racism is over here the church is over here oh there's no way that i would do that so that kind of makes me think about what are some examples we see racism even in scripture what comes to mind at least for me is I'm, I think about uh, back in Exodus, and I think about the uh, Hebrew midwives during the time of, you know, when Moses was a baby. Like Pharaoh straight up said, look, when, if you see uh, the Hebrew women having children, if it is a male, kill it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, in a sense, kill it. In a sense, genocide, but ki- kill it, right? Uh, why? It's simply based upon race and ethnicity is not necessarily based on anything else but the interesting thing about that and then we'll talk more about this later on in the podcast but the interesting thing about that is like the woman stood up but they were like we ain't finna do that we're not doing that and i would believe if more people did that throughout the history of our american nation things would have been very different if somebody just stood up and said i hear what you're saying my life may be at risk for disobeying you, but I'm not doing that because before God, that's wrong. Mm-hmm. And guess what? God protected them. So I think when I'm calling out this example because it literally involves life or death and it's pretty obvious in the scripture, killing babies is bad. Pretty obvious. Yeah. But there's some things that are not so obvious and I want, definitely want to hear from you all um, and this was good discussion when we talked about this earlier. Aaron, Brittany, or Joaquin, what are some ways or some times that you've experienced racism within the Christian church? And like, what happened? How did it like come out or play out? Well, you know, for me, um, <laughs> um, there's been times where I have walked into a white church um, and, you know, um, literally felt like not only like I was the only because um, I know we talked about that before um, in our in our previous in our previous meeting. But there have been times where I've walked into a white church where I felt like I was the only now. I've always felt like that in different areas of you know, just walking into a regular Starbucks in a suburban neighborhood. 
you know, so I, like, I, I always feel like I'm the only. But when I walked in the ch- white church, I didn't necessarily just feel just as I just as if I was the only. I also felt lonely. And that's like and, and there, there's a there's a there's a striking difference between me feeling like I'm the only person versus feeling lonely. Meaning I didn't feel any love. Nobody came to me and greeted me. Or if they did, it was just a, you know, like, you know, like one of those type deals to where it was like, I don't necessarily want anything, you know, to do with that person. Um, you know, and so, and like I said before, it's really been experienced. I've experienced it not all throughout the church, but mainly through with with church folk. So not necessarily like the church as is, as in the institution itself, but, but more so through, you know, through the people, which I mean, the people are the church, but, you know, I've experienced where, you know, I've been out and, you know, fellow Christians who don't necessarily understand the outcry other things that other things that have been happening, you know, especially even now around the world, whether it be, you know, with, you know, Martin Luther King, whether it be with slavery, whether it be with Jim Crow, you know, talking and having those conversations with other white believers, they may, you know, kind of brush it off and say certain things like, you know, Martin Luther King, you know, wasn't theologically sound or anything like that. But yet and still, you know, I think it was, you know, DTS that didn't let a black person in until, and, and this is nothing against DTS. I think DTS is a fine and awesome institution. <laughs> I just want to make sure I say that. <laughs> but but uh, I do want to say that, you know, DTS did not let the first black in, I think, until maybe, what, 68 or 69. So, and, and Martin Luther King, Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated in 68, I believe. So, like, you know, if the first black person didn't get in until 68 and 69, and yet you're discrediting Martin Luther King, for, you know, not having a solid theology, then I mean, just the privilege inside of that, inside of that, you know, quotation, you know, just speaks for itself. So I think, you know, me, me more so experiencing racism, you know, mainly from the people, you know, about, you know, people that are in the church and not necessarily doing anything about it to, you know, uh, make sure everything is, you know, all good. So that's, that's for me, that's, that's, that's the experience I've had. Yeah, no, thank you. Aaron, what are your thoughts? I guess I'll go. Um, I didn't, I forgot to share this with you all, um, but I, I think, um, like Joaquin, I haven't had an experience inside the church. However, when you talk about the church, when you talk about the people, um, I've had, had some experiences. So uh, one of my good friends played football um, together, high school, and, you know, good, um, got saved. And um, we, were, we were doing the whole conscious Christianity um, I would um, conference, and when we were doing the Con- Conscious Christianity conference, and uh, I think I posted something that Dr. Eric Mason had said, and like he was just like, "Nah, you should preach the gospel. Don't worry about race. Like, just preach the gospel." And it's just like these are issues that I'm experiencing as a African American, as a Christian who who is African American. And so because of that, I'm like, man, you don't have compassion for me. And so I was and so we went back and forth. But I was like, this is not fruit. Let me take you to let me take you to the messages and let me have a try to have a conversation. However, he didn't want to have a conversation. And so I just experienced. And that's not the only one. I, I'll never forget. I was in Panda Express, had my uh, conscious Christianity shirt on, doing some um, doing some back work, some groundwork for it. And it was this dude, um, white brother, looked like a good dude, was talking to this black guy. He was like, oh, man, I love your shirt. He's like, man, thank you for being, like, sold out for the Lord. And I you know, I told him about conscious Christianity, and he was like, man, you need to leave that church. Like, what you, what you all are doing is almost like doggone heresy. So, like, and I was just like, hmm, this is interesting. And... I just, I'm, I was just, I was just kind of like taken back because I'm, I'm thinking in my, my mind, like, can you not, do you not understand like what we're going through as, as Christians who are African-American as your brother and as your sister, can you not understand? And so, yeah, I've experienced that. Um, and uh, it's sad, it's sad to hear that and hear them say that because to just preach the gospel, but not. You're preaching the gospel, but you're not walking out the gospel. Your orthopraxy is definitely this out there and definitely wrong. It just hurts me. And it, it just and it just makes me say, like, man, 
I just want you to have some compassion. Like Jesus saw the 5,000 and had compassion. He moved when he saw them. Like, I just, I just want you to see me and have compassion for what we're going through right now. Mm-hmm. Wow. So um, thank you for sharing that, both of y'all. I, um, I have an example that is like actually very close to home because it's just it's very close to home. So um, I spent some time living overseas and when you live overseas, you kind of, and lived overseas serving God, right? And so I kind of got introduced to a new world of Christians. Um, Christians who are living overseas, Christians who are missionaries. It's kind of a, a whole, it's a subculture almost. Mm-hmm. But what I learned was missionary was synonymous with white, not just for outsiders, but for insiders too. And so because I was there, I kind of, you know, kind of shook things up a little bit. But um, and there's a reason why we see more white people overseas right now than black people. That's about systemic racism, too, because these not all of them, but a lot of the big organizations that send Christian overseas intentionally, purposefully stop sending black people overseas when black people were excited about going overseas over 100 years ago. And so there's a reason that overseas Christians who are serving God are white. Now, what I noticed was people would say, yeah, and then they look up, they see a bunch of white people. You know, they've never had to not say white people. They've never had to not, I mean, I'm. this might seem like kind of a, a small deal, but that's really powerful. The people who obey God, the people who send the gospel overseas are white, not anybody else except that's just not true and it's not real. And it's a hurtful narrative, not for me personally, but for the gospel. Because if a missionary is white and a missionary who is white is going overseas to reach somebody who is not white, how can that person be a missionary too? They are not white. And so it's, it's mind boggling to me because I've seen people on the other side of it who are trying to wrestle with, how do I know Jesus? I'm not white, I'm not. It's an unnecessary error. When we see ourselves rightly, when we see other people of God rightly with the same dignity, the same honor. And it's important, I think, for white Christians to know there's a reason you don't see black people beside you. There's a reason you don't see uh, Asian people beside you overseas. It's not happenstance, and it's not just about money. Wow! Yeah, thank you. We got to come back to that because that's a whole nother. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I yeah. when I when I went on, when I went on my <laughs> mission trip, I was somebody told me something particular like, but I'll get back to that. Marshall, I know um, you shared some things as well in your experience about racism in the church. I know one thing that surprised me a little bit was, I guess people had racist undertones, but didn't even think anything bad of them but i don't know if you want to speak to any of that or anything you want to share on that question yeah so i'll I'll be i'll be careful not to divulge where i went or uh to (laughs) to do too much uh bad mouthing in that sense because i do very much have a, a tremendous amount of respect for the the church that i went to but there were quite a few there were some people who were in some key leadership positions who were uh not overt or not covertly they were overtly racist um they would make racial statements when uh there was more diversity added to the church um and they served in key leadership positions and when that is allowed to take place you it doesn't matter what's said from the pulpit uh, what you are communicating in your actions uh, speaks louder than what you're saying from the pulpit Um, And so I've seen it play out that way. I've seen it in missions, just like Brittany so beautifully described it. Um, I experienced that firsthand when in my college uh, days, we went in uh, a mission trip that we had gone on. One of the mission trips we'd gone on, we'd gone to visit a missionary um, in a particular country. And that missionary, uh, when you walked into the church, um, it was in Brazil. And if you know 
anything about Brazilian people. They are vibrant. They are lively. They are loud. They are warm. Um, and so it has been, uh, it was interesting to watch that this, this missionary um, expect people from that culture to morph into uh, what was considered uh, the norm for white American church uh, suits, ties, hymns, um, no dancing, uh, no gyration of the hips. Uh, was that was a, that was a no go? Uh, that was the that was the devil's moves right there. Um, and so I saw that happen uh, in in those instances, um, just personally. No, thank you for sharing that. And based upon what you said, we can get to the next topic. But a few things that I've seen and experienced myself is. Uh, at least as a real, and it gets us into our next topic, but a few things in the church. Uh, one thing, for example, is music. Um, you know, I remember being at church and as long as we played, you know, the Dave Crowder bands, the Mercy Me's, the Hill songs and, you know, you are mighty to say, you know, anything that has a guitar um, that was seen as contemporary, uh, that was good. But as soon as uh you know we put a little a little beat into it a little rhythm a little swaying and clapping day that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength anything like that by the way that's scripture by the way but um but any any time the music shifted or changed now it became too loud or now it became problematic or now it became I don't know the words to this song or now it became things are just different um that was one thing another thing that you know I, i've seen and i've even experienced is uh, i guess i'll say i'll put it like this going to a lot of popular uh christian events christian com- conferences and even prominent christian churches um all the speakers are white i'm not even talking about white versus black i'm just talking about i barely see any Asian speakers. I barely see any, uh, you know, Latino speakers, Hispanics, Hispanic, you know, uh, teachers in the conference. I only see all white teachers. I don't see like anyone else. Um, uh, Authors, right? Um, A lot of books, Joaquin brought up even uh, learning in seminary. Um, Authors, uh, a lot of the people that you read, that you study about, that you hear about, that people quote, their majority all white authors Mm -hmm. and it's not even that like no one of color has written a book (laughs) you know it's just like it's almost like we're actively choosing to do this so those are some things that i've seen and i've even experienced uh we'll even come back around to that but that leads us into this next question which which i would say is you know what is theological imperialism and i'll define it you know just as we talk about it theological imperialism is in a sense where you're mixing your culture and your background with theology and things of God and saying like the way my culture, my ethnic background does things is right. And the way you do it is wrong. Uh, An example is the music thing that I said, contemporary is right. Uh, Urban gospel, ah, devil's music, gyration of the hips. You know, um, that, that's an example of that. Mm -hmm. Um, Joaquin and Marshall, because, and even Aaron, Joaquin, actually, I can't even say that. Uh, everyone on this podcast, like, has taken a seminary class, so like, or or is, is about to go to seminary. So like, that's uh, an amazing thing. So so really, everyone. But uh, Joaquin, you could start it off. What do you see about theological imperialism, even as it relates to like the people you learn or hear in seminary? Yeah, um, like we talked about in the previous meeting. Um, a lot of the stuff that you learn in seminary is, you know, I'm going to just say it is stellar stuff. It's good. It's really good things. Um, you know, and, and to be fair, um, I read a article uh, that actually had a, um, you know, a quote from a um, author who wrote a black book. I mean, an author that was black who wrote a book. So, um, so you know, I, I saw that. Uh, and um, I thought about this too, in my systematic theology class, they also even talked about, uh, in um, Miller Erickson's book, uh, Christian Theology, he also mentioned James uh, James Cone of Black Liberation Theology. So, so that that was even discussed in my sy- sy- uh, systematic theology class. However, you know, um, 
um, as you've already um, described, Nathan, there are, if, if I was to look at all of my books that I, um, that I took as far as all the classes, um, all of them are written by, all of them are written by, you know, um, by, you know, white, white believers. So, um, so now with that being said, you know, I'm not trying to pose the whole, I, the idea that, Hey, you know, these books are not good because honestly they are, they are very good books. However, when you start to exclude a lot of the other writers, for instance, a lot of the black writers who have done theology work, you know, throughout the history, um, when you're talking about, you know, um, like even somebody like Carl, uh, Carl Ellis, or uh, who's uh, written the book Free at Last, or when you talk about someone like Tom Skinner, or even a study of James Cone in Black Liberation Theology, although I do not agree with Black Liber Liberation Theology, um, you know, even just being able to listen, you know, and understand, hey, well, how did Ta James Cone even get to this, you know, type of theology? And, and, and like, you know, and, and why is that so important? And like even being able to study something like that, you know, is totally un, like totally unheard of. So um, even, you know, like even now when when, you know, when I'm taking like my multicultural uh, class, um, you know, I have a book that's written by Paul G. Hybert, um, The Gospel in This Context, really great book and talking about um, missiological work. Right. The problem is, though, is that as Brittany was saying earlier, you have you know, white uh, missionaries who are going overseas to somewhere like Ghana or somewhere like Uganda or Nigeria, who is doing missional work with people that don't look like them. And as Marshall saying, basically put like, you know, pressing or uh, pushing a Western culture, um, you know, on a culture that is not like the culture that they're, um, that they're doing missions to. And so, um, and so for me, back my books. Okay. Uh, so uh, for me, you know, uh, one of the, one of the biggest things I think is, is that, Hey, like, why aren't our white counterparts, even our schools talking about something like Doug Logan's book on the block. So like when we think about on the block is literally a missiological work that literally talks about what's going on right now in America, like, you know, on the, in the streets of America. It's like we have a lot of our white brothers and sisters going overseas, but we don't have a lot of our white brothers and sisters going next door to talk to the black church down the street. You know, so um, so so there's a flaw in our in our missions. And if the gospel is to go out to the entire world, but yet you missed the step of next door, then, you know, even when you go overseas, your gospel that you're trying to spread is going to be off because you're not even, you're not even worried about talking about the person that's next, that's next door. You know what I mean? Like I can't even have this conversation, like, like praise God that Marshall, a believer who just so happens to be white is on here, even having mm -hmm. this discussion with us. Right. You know? Um, so like even him being on here, having this, having this discussion, shows a lot about Marshall's uh, missiological type gospel uh, if he was to go overseas. But but from what I see and from what Brittany has seen um, going overseas and looking at a lot of the white people, well, white believers who are um, going overseas, but are not willing to have a conversation about the racism and injustices that actually go on in the States, I think that, you know, that shows me or whatnot that the gospel that you preach is not the gospel that I read about in the scriptures, you know? Um, so like, you know, when I think about um, even just, just going back, like I'm, I'm, I'm kind of backtracking a little bit, but just thinking about my daughter's name, my daughter's name is Katora, like my, my younger daughter, her name is Katora. If you look, Katora's name is found in Genesis 25. And basically, Genesis 25, you'll see that Keturah was the second wife after Sarah died to Abraham. And she had a child named Midian, right? Midian or whatnot, basically, if you look at the lineage, came out to be like, you know, that was a part of the Cushites and all that stuff like that. You see that Zipporah, Moses' wife, was a Cushite who just so happened to be a black woman. And since basically the Midianites might have actually been black. So like, so the whole idea or whatever is to be able to see, I can be, I can use scripture to see that, hey, there were chocolate people, you know what I'm saying, in the scriptures, you know, just as much it was, you know, the lighter hue people in scripture as well. So like, you know, um, being able to see 
you know, just even like, you know, with um, with Keturah and being able to see the identity within the scriptures. And when, you know, you can just just by that or whatever, you can tell that he was really God was really working when he says to um, Abraham, you will be the father of many nations. Mm-hmm. You, see, you see what I'm saying? So like, you know, if so. And then when Jesus comes back and tells his disciples in Matthew 28 and tells his disciples, hey, go, therefore, make disciples you know, um, you know, and, and baptizing them and, and you know, for all, all nations, that scripture, Matthew 28, that, no, 18 through, 18 through 20. So when you see that, and when we're talking about going all to the nations, and when you come out to, when you go to the book of Acts and you see the book of Acts, um, them being persecuted so that the gospel can go out to the ends of the earth. You see what I'm saying? Like the gospel is not necessarily just, is not, you know, at all, just that belongs to one particular race. And so, therefore, the gospel seems to be a bit multifaceted, you know, and it should be and it's not just, you know, um, me just understanding that the gospel is like should be look should look like a white person. You know, the gospel shouldn't look like a white person. The gospel is is, is, is just is the gospel, you know. So like um, so I hope that makes sense. I hope I didn't um, confuse nobody. But um, but yeah, but just wanted to let people the people know that, you know, hey, like. I think when we talk about theolo- theological imperialism, you know, there is no so-called one w- one right type way. You see what I'm saying? Because m- unless, you know, the only right way or whatever is that, you know, you believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, um, that's the only right way. But and but I think we lose um, we lose the, the um, we, we get a disconnect between other people. Um, when we find, you know, when we, when we are, when, when racism is involved. So, yeah. And like, even thinking about theological imperialism, um, like I think about an experience and have people talk about like, um, what church should I go to? And this church is the right church for me to go to. For example, um, I've been to a lot of different churches, um, grew up in a whole bunch of different churches, mostly the, an African-American church, but I did have a couple experiences in multicultural church and a white church. And it's sick for, especially when I went to college, um, it was this, it was this migration or a wave of saying, man, doing it the evangelical conservative type church way is the right way. However, it's been a migration where you see a lot of Christians who are African-American go back to the African-American church. Um, and that could be that could be a whole lot of reason why they did that. We could have a two-hour discussion because of that. And so to me, when I when I when I've seen that, and I, I've even had conflict myself to say, man, how how are you doing this better? Or why why do you think this is right? Um, and now going to the African-American church. And Marsha, I would even like to hear your comments on saying like, man, how did you even like come to crossover? Like, why do you, why did like you choose crossover and God leads you here? How did God lead you? Oh, <clears throat> so uh, I would add, first of all, to the whole theological imperialism, just to kind of sum up, um, theological imperialism kills gospel contextualization. I mean, that's just plain and simple. Um, break it down. Now break it down for the people. Break it down. <laughs> make it plain. No! Make it plain. <laughs> you, you, if, if, you're, if you're operating under theological imperialism, that your theological framework is the absolute right one, and there is no other one that's acceptable or worth listening to, and everybody needs to conform to your thing, um, you cannot contextualize the gospel for the people you're reading, uh, reaching, because the only culture you'll see is your own. Mm-hmm. You just won't. You won't be able to take the gospel and apply it to their cultural context because the only one you really care about is your own. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, on that note, as far as answering the question uh, Aaron asked, um, so I was on staff at a church in Northern Indiana, and uh, God had led me to uh and my family to make the decision to to head to dallas theological seminary to work on uh master's theology um and 
when we moved back, this was the first time in my entire life I ever had to do church hunting. Uh, I grew up in a church, served for several years in that church uh, right out of high school, and then moved from that church to the one I was at in northern Indiana. Uh, so I never really had to hunt a church. I never had to go look for one. And so that was a weird, weird thing for us. Um, so when we moved back to Houston, we were trying to figure out, okay, what do we, what do, we do? Where do we go? And, and I remember thinking, I, I told my wife, I was like, hey, you know, there's an old prof of mine from College Biblical Studies, uh, Blake Wilson, who pastors a church in this area. Maybe we should go check it out. Um, because I was heavily influenced by Pastor Blake in Bible college um, in a youth ministry class. I had a couple other classes, but a youth ministry class in particular that forever shaped how I did youth ministry. Um, and so I thought, well, hey, this is a great opportunity. So we we planned and decided that that Sunday we'd, we'd come to church. Uh, and what was interesting was we really only found the address. I didn't look on the website. I already knew Pastor Blake, who he was, what he's about. So I didn't need to like listen to sermons. I know what he's about. Um, and so we just showed up. And uh, what was really interesting was it was the very first time in my entire life that I had felt my whiteness. Wow. I walked in and we like we clearly stood out. Uh, we're here. We are at a church of a predominantly African American, and here these white people come walking in the door, and I felt extremely awkward about my whiteness because the first thoughts that come to my mind are: Are they gonna? Are they gonna assume that I'm like every other white person? You know, are they gonna? Am I gonna be lumped in with that? You know, and I was, which is interesting. I'll get to that here in a second. I was thinking those things, but really what what I was met with was opposite of that. I was met, our family was met with uh, just unbelievable warmth, um, unbelievable warmth. And so then the church, that ch- crossover became for us the standard when we'd go other places. Um, you know, we checked out Houston Northwest where Pastor Steve Besner's at um, and loved him loved what he was about loved hearing his preaching um but just every church we went to we're like man but it's not quite like crossover uh and then eventually we just realized you know what maybe crossover is where we need to be and when we left that first sunday what was interesting is we got in the car and i said to my wife i was like is this what it feels like to be black in america Mm, when wow because i felt my whiteness that day and i was like I'm thinking they're going to lump me in with someone else. And then I thought, well, isn't, is that what it's like to be black in America where you think you're going to be lumped in with everybody else? Where when you walk into a room or you walk into a building, all of a sudden your color stands out. Um, And so that, that made me very uncomfortable in a good way. And sometimes our greatest growth happens on the other side of our discomfort. And so uh, part of why we stayed was one, we loved uh, what the church was about you know, teaching people the word of God, touching people with the love of God like that. We loved that. We loved everything about crossover. We loved the warmth. We love the people. We just love our church. Um, and so for us, it was, you know, that that's what kept us um, was, was the warmth. Um, and it has been a growing process ever since realizing how, um, how the gospel plays out in a different cultural context, um, having to adjust, like Nathan has said, to a different music style than what we're what we're used to. Um, songs we, quite honestly, I'd never heard before, um, <laughs> and I didn't know the lyrics. So I'm standing here. I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing right now. Uh, and so that that was really good for me to feel that. Um, and for my family to feel that. And our hope was one of the reasons we wanted to stay was our hope is that maybe our boys, if we can keep them around here for a while, then they, they will learn um, some of this. And then maybe they will be part of a change in the future um, so that they'll see their dad and mom doing something now so that they continue that on. And maybe we can, we can be a part of sparking some change um, when it comes to things like racism and even racism in the church. Um, so that's kind of the story of how we, in a snapshot of how and why we ended up at crossover. Amen. So I, I can say this, y'all, 
I, I've sat next to Marshall doing service. He got rhythm now, y'all. He he, he on beat. <laughs> he on beat. He got it. So uh, he's, you know, he's one of us. He's one of us. That's for sure. <laughs> I'm serious too. I'm being serious. But uh, you said you said you talked a little bit about crossover. So I just want to say this just so people know. Uh, I've been at crossover quite a while. Uh, crossover did not start as a so-called majority black church. Crossover actually started as a multicultural church. There were some Asian people. There were some black people. Um, I don't like calling people by their race, but that's a whole other issue that we're about to get into later. But there are some Asian people. There are some black people. There are some white people, Hispanic people. Like it wasn't just majority one thing. It was a mix of many things. Uh, I will admit that as time went on, um, crossover people used to come to it by word of mouth. It's not like we, we didn't do any advertising. We didn't buy any commercials. We didn't buy any billboards. It was word of mouth. People came. They heard the word of God. They felt the love from the people. And they said, oh, you got to try this church I'm visiting or you got to try this church I joined. And so people would come. I will admit we didn't do anything on purpose to draw in people of color. They just so happened to come. I know one of the things that was disappointing to me was it seemed to me like the ratio of people of color as it went up, uh, other ethnicities exited, exited the door or they no longer felt comfortable. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think conversations like these are important because people will say God doesn't see color or people will say, um, you know, God's love trumps racism and people will say, I'm not racist, but of course, they don't say that out loud. They say things like, oh, a lot of black people showing up. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I feel God's leading me somewhere else. Be a man, Nathan. Vinny's <laughs> um, commenting on my, my, my falsetto voice, this old as a woman. So. Always. <laughs> well, in this case, the I was talking to was a woman. I'm, not, I'm trying not to give away too many details. But... Um, yeah, you know, the, the ratio of people of color increased, and then it was, you know, man, I, I, you know, I love you guys, but I, I just, you know, I feel God calling me somewhere else. They didn't just come out and say, I'm uncomfortable around all these people, people of color, because mm -hmm. that's, that's, that's appalling. No one would say that. So um, Crossover didn't start as a majority um, African-American church. It just so happened as God drew, drew people. And I know of another church. Um, in the Pearland area, it started as an African-American church, but then they had mixed leadership and now it is majority white church. And um, the music changed and the makeup of the church changed and the personality changed. And it still has some people of color, but it is majority white. Um, so yeah. that being said, it can happen both ways. And I, I see sometimes those people are like, yo. Um, you know, I don't hear no more gospel anymore. Uh, I, I feel God leading me somewhere else and they back up. So that's an interesting thing. But I love how Marshall said, hey, man, you know, the love of Christ kind of trumped all those other things. Amen. And the, the takeaway, at least I got from Marshall's story was if you want to, in a sense, solve racism in the church, you're literally going to have to be intentional about loving people who look different than you. That's good, Nate. Mm -hmm. I say it intentional, meaning it has to be a conscious thought and you have to give conscious effort to it. Mm -hmm. uh, while I was talking, I said white people, black people, Hispanic people. And then I made a comment and said, I don't like calling people by their race, which brings me to this question. Um, do you identify, this is for you know, everybody, mm -hmm. but do you identify with your race your ethnicity or your nationality. Race would be, I'll just say myself, race would be, he's black. Ethnicity would be, I'm African, more specifically from Ghana. I'm Ghanaian. Uh, my nationality, well, like, hey, I grew up here in America. I, I was born and raised here in America. So I'm American, right? So there's like three things in my uh, observation. There's three experiences just off that which make me unique. But besides that point, I'm interested to hear of what you all say. And even people who are uh, listening and watching, you can leave in the comments. What do you identify as your race, your ethnicity, or your nationality? Uh, Brittany, if you want to start us off. Sure. Um, this is a really interesting question for everybody else besides Nathan. 
Um, because for the black people here, uh, here on this podcast and here in America, a lot of us are in America as a result of the transatlantic slave trade. So um, we don't have a particular nation. We don't have a particular ethnicity that we can attach to, that we can connect with, um, that, that connects us to a historical country. This is the historical country, as far as we as far as we know. Some people have done DNA tests, but even if you do a DNA test, that's just facts on a page. Um, it, a culture doesn't come from DNA results. So um, I think that for the the Black American who is, is here as a result of the transatlantic slave trade, um, we would have a harder time identifying with, for example, someplace in Africa, um, most likely someplace in West Africa. Um, and so at least for me, I'm kind of always in conflict. I identify with being Black, but I also realize that Blackness is something that's very fluid. Blackness is something that white people came up with. And so I'm not just saying that. Um, <laughs> uh, to be white has changed over time. In the 1800s and the 1900s, to be white has fluctuated. This group was welcome and that group wasn't. And it changed. There are court cases about this. Can the Japanese be white? Can Iraqis be white? I mean, there's a whole history around what race is. If it can change, if it's fluid, we know somebody made it up. Okay? So somebody made it up. And historically, what people have known is family lines and nation, right? Um, it hasn't been that, like, I'm a yellow person of the people of yellow. No, like my people are from this country, from this tribe, from this family. Black people don't have that. So we don't, hello? I mean, that doesn't make sense. So we don't have so much of a choice there. Do I identify with black? Of course I do. What else will I, I mean, on my boxes that I check, on my SAT box, on my ACT box, on my college admissions box, on my census box, on my taxes box, I check the black box. Do you feel American? See, now that's an interesting question. <laughs> <laughs> no, because that because that would be that would be that would be nationality. That so. would be nationality. American. So I have, real quick, I took a class in college that forever destroyed me. Um, the class was called uh, Global Change. It was about globalism, a uh, globalization, and we read all these books about globalization. I did not know what that class was actually going to be about. The syllabus did not match the content, okay? But basically, it was about the, the ongoing injustices of the United States, the European Union, and the World Bank. I mean, it was, it was so devastating to me because I didn't know that I live in a country besides slavery, besides all the things done to people in our own country, Native American people, Mexican people, you name it. Like, I didn't realize that we had caused so much pain to all these other countries, that we had forced people into agreements that would keep their countries in poverty and dependent on us. And so mm -hmm. when, I, when I learned about that, I just thought to myself, whoa, 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 this place that I thought was so good is not so good. Mm -hmm. Do I like that I can get an apartment like on my own? Do I like that I can go get a job, et cetera? Yes, but there's so many things I don't like. And it's very hard for me to fully embrace being an American when I know that America doesn't fully embrace me. Um, and that America says, you're probably A, B, C, D, kind of like, um, like you mentioned earlier, Marshall, about people putting you into boxes. I mean, when I lived in Atlanta, I went to Emory, but everywhere I went, people asked me, oh, do you go to Spelman? Oh, do you go to, I mean, wow. when they knew I was a college student, wow. right? Wow. Do you go to, um, all kinds of people, all kinds of people. They just all had the guesses. Nobody ever guessed Emory because black people aren't that smart. Um, I hate to say it, but that's not the first thought that comes to mind. Like you probably don't go to the best one. You probably just go to one of the ones that all the other ones go to, Georgia State, you know? And this of course is no shade to Georgia State. These are great schools. It's just these, these stereotypes mean more than people are willing to say. <laughs>